0: section fifteen of once a week by a a milne this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter nine the men who succeed part one the air mr trevor pilkington of the well-known firm of trevor pilkington fixed his horn spectacles carefully upon his nose took a pinch of snuff sneezed twice gave his papers a preliminary rustle, looked slowly round the crowded room, and began to read the will. Through forty years of will-reading, his method of procedure had always been the same. But Jack Summers, who was sharing an ottoman with two of the outdoor servants, thought that Mr. Pilkington's mannerisms were designed specially to annoy him, and he could scarcely control his impatience yet no one ever had less to hope from the reading of a will than jack for the first twenty years of his life his parents had brought him up to believe that his cousin cecil was the heir to his uncle alfred's enormous fortune and for the subsequent ten years his cousin cecil had brought his uncle alfred up in the same belief Indeed, Cecil had even roughed out one or two wills for signature, and had offered to help his uncle, who, however, preferred to do these things by himself, to hold the pen. Jack could not help feeling glad that his cousin was not there to parade his approaching triumph. A nasty cold caught a week previously in attending his uncle having kept Cecil in bed. To the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, ten shillings and sixpence. The words came to him in a meaningless drone. To the Fresh Air Fund, ten shillings and sixpence. To the King Edward Hospital Fund, ten shillings and sixpence. Was all the money going into charities? to my nephew cecil linley who has taken such care of me mr pilkington hesitated four shillings and ninepence to my nephew john somers whom thank heaven i have never seen five million pounds a long whistle of astonishment came from the ottoman the solicitor looked up with a frown it's the surprise apologized jack I hardly expected so much. I thought that the brute, I mean, I thought that my cousin Cecil had nobbled, that is to say, was getting it all. The late Mr. Alfred made three wills, said the lawyer in a moment of expansion. In the first, he left his nephew Cecil a legacy of one shilling and tenpence. In the second, he bequeathed him a sum of three shillings and tuppence. "'In the last he set aside the amount of four shillings and nine pence. "'The evidence seems to show that your cousin was rapidly rising in his uncle's estimation. "'You, on the other hand, have always been a legatee to the amount of five million pounds. "'But in the last will there is a trifling condition attached.' "'He resumed his papers.' To my nephew, John Summers, five million pounds, on condition that, within one year from the date of my death, he marries Mary Huggins, the daughter of my dear old friend, now deceased, William Huggins. Jack Summers rose proudly from his end of the ottoman. Thanks, he said curtly. That tears it. It's very kind of the old gentleman, but I prefer to choose a wife for myself. He bowed to the company and strode from the room. It was a cloudless August day. In the shadow of the great elms that fringed the Sussex lane, a girl sat musing. On its side, in the grass at her feet, a bicycle, its back wheel deflated. She sat on the grassy bank with her hat in her lap, Quite content to wait until the first passer-by with a repairing outfit in his pocket should offer to help her. Can I be of any assistance? said a manly voice suddenly waking her from her reverie. She turned with a start. The owner of the voice was dressed in a stylish knickerbocker suit. His eyes were blue, his face was tanned, his hair was curly, and he was at least six foot tall so much she noticed at a glance. "'My bicycle,' she said. "'Punctured.' In a minute he was on his knees beside the machine. A rapid examination convinced him that she had not overstated the truth, and he whipped from his pocket the repairing outfit, without which he never travelled. "'I can do it in a moment,' he said. "'At least, if you can just help me a little,' As she knelt beside him, he could not fail to be aware of her wonderful beauty. The repairs, somehow, took longer than he thought. Their heads were very close together all the time, and, indeed, on one occasion came violently into contact. There, he said at last, getting up and barking his shin against the pedal. Conf— That'll be all right. Thank you she said tenderly. He looked at her without disguising his admiration. A tall, straight figure in the sunlight, its right chin rubbing itself vigorously against its left calf. "'It's absurd,' he said at last. "'I feel as if I've known you for years. And anyway, I'm certain I've seen you before somewhere.' "'Did you ever go to the seaside, girl?' she asked eagerly. "'Often.' Do you remember the Spanish princess who came on at the beginning of the second act and said, Wow, wow, to the mayor? Why, of course. And you had your photograph in the sketch, the Tatler, the bystander, and the sporting and dramatic, all in the same week? The girl nodded happily. Yes, I'm Marie Huguenot, she said. And I'm Jack Summers, so now we know each other. He took her hand. Marie, he said, ever since I have mended your bicycle, I mean, ever since I have known you, I have loved you. Will you marry me? Jack, she cooed. You did say Jack, didn't you? Bless you, Marie. We shall be very poor, dear. Will you mind? Not with you, Jack. At least, not if you mean what I mean by very poor. Two thousand a year yes that's about what i mean jack took her in his arms and mary huggins can go and marry the pope he said with a smile with a look of alarm in her eyes she pushed him suddenly away from her there was a crash as his foot went through the front wheel of the bicycle mary huggins she cried yes i was left a fortune on condition that i married a person called mary huggins absurd as though how much oh quite a lot if it wasn't for those confounded death duties five million pounds you see jack jack cried the girl don't you understand i am mary huggins he looked at her in amazement you said your name was marie huguenot he said slowly my stage name dear naturally i couldn't I mean, one mustn't. You know how particular managers are. When father died and I had to go on the stage for a living, Marie, my darling... Mary rose and picked up her bicycle. The air had gone out of the back wheel again, and there were four spokes broken, but she did not heed it. You must write to your lawyer tonight, she said. Won't he be surprised? But... Being a great reader of the magazines, he wasn't. THE STATESMAN On a certain night, in the middle of the season, all London was gathered in Lady Marchpane's drawing-room. All London, that is, which was worth knowing, a qualification which accounted for the absence of several million people who had never heard of Lady Marchpane. In one corner of the room, an ambassador, with a few ribbons across his chest, could have been seen chatting to the latest American duchess. In another corner, one of our largest advertisers was exchanging epigrams with a titled newspaper proprietor. Famous generals rubbed shoulders with post-impressionist artists. Financiers whispered sweet nothings to breeders of prize palms. Even an actor-manager might have been seen accepting an apology from a royalty who had just jostled him. "'Hello,' said Algie LaSalle, catching sight of the dignified figure of Rupert Meryton in the crowd. "'How's William?' A rare smile lit up Rupert's distinguished features. He was Under-Secretary for Invasion Affairs, and William— was Algy's pleasant way of referring to the bill which he was now piloting through the House of Commons. It was a measure for doing something or other by means of a what-do-you-call-it. I cannot be more precise without precipitating a European conflict. I think we shall get it through, said Rupert calmly. Lady Marchpane was talking about it just now. She's rather interested, you know. Rupert's lips closed about his mouth in a firm line. He looked over Algy's head into the crowd. Oh, he said, coldly. It was barely ten years ago that young Meryton, just down from Oxford, had startled the political world by capturing the important seat of Cricklewood East for the Tarifaticals, as, to avoid plunging the country into civil war, I must call them, This was at a by-election and the liberatives had immediately dissolved only to come into power after the general election with an increased majority through the years that followed Rupert Meryton by his pertinacity in asking the invasion secretary questions which had been answered by him on the previous day and by his regard for the dignity of the house as shown in his invariable comment "'come, come, not quite the gentleman, upon any display of bad manners opposite, "'established a clear right to a post in the subsequent tariffatical government. "'He had now been under-secretary for two years, and in this bill his first real chance had come. "'Oh, there you are, Mr. Merriton," said a voice. "'Come and talk to me a moment.' With a nod to a couple of archbishops, Lady Marchpane led the way to a little gallery whither the crowd had not penetrated. Priceless Correggios, Tintorettos, and G. K. Chestertons hung upon the walls. But it was not to show him these that she had come. Dropping into a wonderful old Chippendale chair, she motioned him to a blundell maple opposite her and looked at him with a curious smile. "'Well,' she said, "'about the bill?' Rupert's lips closed about his mouth in a firm line. He was rather good at this. Folding his arms, he gazed steadily into Lady Marchpane's still beautiful eyes. "'It will go through,' he said, "'through all its stages,' he added professionally. "'It must not go through,' said Lady Marchpane gently. Rupert could not repress a start, "'but he was master of himself again in a moment. "'I cannot add anything to my previous statement,' he said. "'If it goes through,' began Lady Marchpane, "'I must refer you,' said Rupert, "'to my answer of yesterday. "'Come, come, Mr. Merriton. "'What is the good of fencing with me? "'You know the position. "'Or shall I state it for you again?' "'I cannot believe you are serious.' i am perfectly serious there are reasons financial reasons and others why i do not want this bill to pass in return for my silence upon a certain matter you are going to prevent it passing you know to what i refer on the fourth of may last stop cried rupert hoarsely on the fourth of may last lady marchpane went on relentlessly "'You and I, in the absence of my husband abroad, had tea together at an ABC.' "'Rupert covered his face with his hands. "'I am no fonder of scandal than you are, but if you do not meet my wishes, I shall certainly confess the truth to Marchpane. "'You will be ruined too,' said Rupert. "'My husband will forgive me and take me back.' "'She paused significantly.' "'Will Marjorie Hale?' "'Rupert covered his hands with his face. "'Will the good Miss Hale forgive you? "'She is very strict, is she not? "'And rich? "'And rising young politicians want money more than scandal?' She raised her head suddenly at the sound of footsteps. "'Ah, Archbishop, I was just calling Mr. Merriton's attention "'to this wonderful but—' "'She looked at it more closely—' THIS WONDERFUL DANA GIBSON, A BEAUTIFUL PIECE OF WORK, IS IT NOT? THE INTRUDERS PASSED ON TO THE SUPPER-ROOM, AND THEY WERE AGAIN ALONE. WHAT AM I TO DO? SAID RUPERT, SULLENLY. THE FATE OF THE BILL IS SETTLED TODAY WEEK, WHEN YOU MAKE YOUR BIG SPEECH. YOU MUST SPEAK AGAINST IT. CONFESS FRANKLY YOU WERE MISTAKEN. IT WILL BE A CLOSE THING ANYHOW. YOUR INFLUENCE WILL TURN THE SCALE. "'It will ruin me politically. "'You will marry Marjorie Hale and be rich. "'No rich man is ever ruined politically or socially.' "'She patted his hand gently. "'You'll do it?' "'He got up slowly. "'You'll see next week,' he said. "'It is not meet that we should watch the unhappy Rupert "'through the long-drawn hours of the night,' as he wrestled with the terrible problem. A moment's sudden madness on that May afternoon had brought him to the crossroads. On the one hand, reputation, wealth, the girl that he loved. On the other, his own honour, and, so at least he had said several times on the platform, the safety of England. He rose in the morning weary, but with his mind made up. The bill should go through. Rupert Merriton was a speaker of a not unusual type. Although he provided the opinions himself, he always depended upon his secretary for the arguments with which to support them, and the actual words in which to give them being. But on this occasion he felt that a special effort was required of him. He would show Lady Marchpane that the blackmail of yesterday had only roused him to a still greater effort on behalf of his country he would write his own speech. On the fateful night, the house was crowded. It seemed that all the guests at Lady Marchpain's a week before were in the distinguished stranger's gallery or behind the ladies' grill. From the press gallery, our special word painter, looked down upon the statesman beneath him, his eagle eye ready to detect on the moment the angry flush, the wince, or the sudden paling of enemy the grim smile or the lofty calm of friend the right honourable rupert merriton taraphatical member for cricklewood east rose to his feet amidst cheers mr speaker he said i rise er to-night sir to er so much of his speech i may give but urgent state reasons compel me to withhold the rest. Were it ever known with which bill the secret history that I have disclosed concerns itself, the great powers in an instant would be at each other's throats. But though I may not disclose the speech, I can tell of its effect on the House. And its effect was curious. In fact, it was exactly the opposite of what Rupert Merriton, that promising under-secretary, had intended. It was the first speech that he had ever prepared himself. Than Rupert there was no more dignified figure in the House of Commons. His honour was proof, as we have seen, against the most insidious temptations. Yet, since one man cannot have all the virtues, he was distinctly stupid. It would have been a hopeless speech, anyhow, but, to make matters worse, he had, in the most important part of it, attempted irony, and at the beginning of the ironical passage even the tariffatical word-painters had to confess that it was their own stalwarts who suddenly paled. As Lady Marchpane had said, it was bound to be a close thing. The Liberatives and the Unionists, of course, were solid against the bill, but there was also something of a cave in the tariffatical party. It was bound to be a close thing, and Rupert's speech just made the difference. When he sat down, the waverers and doubters had made up their minds. The bill was defeated. That the taraphatical should resign was natural perhaps it was equally natural that Rupert's secretary should resign too. He said that his reputation would be gone if Rupert made any more speeches on his own, and that he wasn't going to risk it. Without his secretary, Rupert was lost at the general election which followed. Fortunately, he had a grateful friend in Lady Marchpain. She exerted her influence with the Liberative's, and got him an appointment as governor of the Stickjaw Islands. Here, with his beautiful and rich wife, Sir Rupert Meryton maintains a regal state, and upon his name no breath of scandal rests. Indeed, his only trouble so far has been with the Stickjaw language, a difficult language, but one which, perhaps fortunately, does not lend itself to irony. the magnate it was in october nineteen blank that the word zinc first began to be heard in financial circles city men pushing their dominoes regretfully away and murmuring zinc in apologetic tones were back in their offices by three o'clock forgetting in their haste to leave the usual tuppence under the cup for the waitress club men glancing at the tape on their way to the smoking-room said to their neighbors, "Zincs moved a point, I see, before covering themselves up with the times. In the trains, returning husbands asked each other loudly, What's all this about zinc? All save the very innocent ones, who whispered, I say, what is zinc exactly? The music halls took it up. No sooner had the word zinc left the lips of an acknowledged comedian and the house was in roars of laughter the furore at the collodium when octavius octo in his world-famous part of the landlady of a boarding-house remarked i know why me old man so late he's busy buying zinc is still remembered in the bar's round piccadilly to explain it properly it will be necessary my readers will be alarmed to hear To go back some thirty years. This, as a simple calculation shows, takes us to June eighteen blank. It was in June eighteen blank that Felix Moses, a stout young man of attractive appearance, if you care for that style, took his courage in both hands and told Philida Sloane that he was worth ten thousand a year and was changing his name to Mountain. Miss Sloane, seeing that it was the beginning of a proposal, said hastily that she was changing hers to Abraham. You're marrying Leo, Abraham? asked Felix in amazement. Ah! A gust of jealousy swept over him. He licked his lips. There was a dangerous look in his eyes, a look that was destined in after days to make emperors and rival financiers quail ah he said softly leo abraham i shall not forget and now it will be necessary my readers will be relieved to learn to jump forward some thirty years this obviously takes us up to september nineteen blank let us on this fine september morning take a peep into number blank Thrognail street e c AND SEE HOW THE BUSINESS OF THE MOTHER CITY IS CARRIED ON. ON THE FOURTH FLOOR WE COME TO THE SANCTUM OF THE GREAT MAN HIMSELF. MR. FELIX MOUNTAINAY, NO ADMITTANCE, IS PAINTED UPON THE OUTER DOOR. IT IS A NAME WHICH IS KNOWN AND FEARED ALL OVER EUROPE. MR. MOUNTAINAY'S PRIVATE DETECTIVE STANDS ON ONE SIDE OF THE DOOR. ON THE OTHER SIDE IS MR. MOUNTAINAY'S PRIVATE WOLFHOUND murmuring the word press however we pass hastily through and find ourselves before mr Mountenay himself mr Mountenay is at work let us watch him through a typical five minutes for a moment he stands meditating in the middle of the room kings are tottering on their thrones empires hang upon his nod what will he decide Suddenly he blows a cloud of smoke from his cigar and rushes to the telephone. Hello. Is that you, Jones? What are margarine prefs at? What? No, margarine prefs, idiot. Ah, then sell. Keep on selling till I tell you to stop. Yes. He hangs up the receiver. For two minutes he paces the room, smoking rapidly. He stops a moment, but it is only to remove his cigar-band, which is in danger of burning. Then he resumes his pacings. Another minute goes rapidly by. He rushes to the telephone again. "'Hello, is that you, Jones? What are Marjor and Prefs down to now?' "'Ah, then buy. Keep on buying. Yes.' He hangs up the receiver. By this masterstroke he has made a quarter of a million. It may seem to you or me an easy way of doing it. Ah, but what, we must ask ourselves, of the great brain that conceived the idea, the foresight which told the exact moment when to put it into action, the cool courage which seized the moment? What of the grasp of affairs, the knowledge of men? Ah, can we grudge it him that he earns a quarter of a million more quickly than we do? Yet, Mister Felix Mountenay is not happy. When we have brought off a coup for a hundred thousand, even we smile gaily. Mister Mountenay did not smile. Fiercely, he bit another inch off his cigar and muttered to himself. The words were, "Leo Abraham, wait." That was positively the last row of dots. Let us take advantage of them to jump forward another month. It was October 1st, 19-blank. If that was a Sunday, then it was October 2nd. Anyhow, it was October. Mr. Felix Mountenay was sleeping in his office. For once that iron brain relaxed. He had made a little over three million in the last month, and the strain was too much for him, but a knock at the door restored him instantly to his own cool self. "'I beg your pardon, sir,' said his secretary." but somebody is selling zinc the word zinc touched a chord in mr Mountenay's brain which had lain dormant for years zinc why did zinc remind him of leo abraham fetch the encyclopedia britannica quick he cried the secretary a man of herculean build returned with some of it with the luck, which proverbially attends rich men, Mr. Mountenay picked up the Z-volume at once. As he read the zinc article, it all came back to him. Leo Abraham had owned an empty zinc mine. Was his enemy in his clutches at last? Buy, he said briefly. In a fortnight, the secretary had returned. Well, said Mr. Mountenay. have you bought all the zinc there is? ''Yes, sir,'' said the secretary, ''and a lot that there isn't,'' he added. ''Good,'' he paused a moment. ''When Mr. Leo Abraham calls,'' he added grimly, ''show him up at once.'' It was a month later that a haggard man climbed the stairs of Number Blank Throgneedle Street, and was shown into Mr. Mountaine's room. ''Well,'' said the financier, softly, "'What can I do for you?' "'I want some zinc,' said Leo Abergavny. "'Zinc,' said Mr. Mountenay with a smile, "'is a million pounds a ton. "'Or an acre, or a gallon, or however you prefer to buy it,' "'he added humorously. "'Leo went white. "'You wish to ruin me?' "'I do. "'A promise I made to your wife some years ago.' "'My wife?' cried Leo. What do you mean? I'm not married. It was Mr. Mountenay's turn to go white. He went it. Not married? But Miss Sloane, Mr. Leo Abergavney, sat down and mopped his face. I don't know what you mean, he said. I asked Miss Sloane to marry me, and told her I was changing my name to Abergavney, and she said that she thought she was changing hers to Moses. I thought, stop, cried Mr. Mountenay. He sat down heavily. Something seemed to have gone out of his life. In a moment the world was empty. He looked up at his old rival and forced a laugh. "'Well, well,' he said. "'She deceived us both. Let us drink to our lucky escape.' He rang the bell. "'And then,' he said in a purring voice, "'we can have a little talk about zinc.' "'After all,' Business is still business. End of section 15